The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Okay, um, the scripture for today is Psalm 44. And I just wanted to say when I first read it, I thought, oh, poor Brad. Um, But the thing about Psalms that I love is that there is so much emotion in it, and God sees our different phases of emotion. And some of this is just a lament of basically, where, where are you, God? And he's there, but he hears us. And I, maybe a lot of us have felt that this year. But Okay, Psalm 44. Oh, God, we have heard with our ears our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but then you planted. You afflicted the people, peoples, but then you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in in my bow did I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved me from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us. Though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant, our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed, departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would God not discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh, like Grace said, this psalm is not an easy one, and I hope you're not in a good mood this morning because... That's about to change. In the summer, we are in a series titled Planted by Streams, where we're going through the Psalter. And so I want to have a little check-in. I'm curious, what is your relationship like with the Psalms? Uh, For me, if I'm honest, I would say that for most of my life, the Psalms have not been very important for prayer, for worship. 
sad to say, in some of the churches I've been a part of, it didn't seem like the Psalms really had much of a shaping effect on the gathered worship. And as I've reflected on this in the church, and I've reflected on this in my own life, I, I think this is a loss. When I look back uh, at the church, the history of the church, when I, when I look back all the way to the early church, you, you can't deny that the Psalms were central to the life of the community. They were central to the life of prayer and worship. Uh, these psalms were not just in a kind of dry way recited because that's something that we were supposed to do, but it, it shaped, they shaped the imagination of the church. An early church father named Athanasius says, whatever your particular need or trouble, from the psalms you can select a form of words to fit it, so that you may not merely hear and pass on but may learn the way to remedy your ill. It's high praise. Another father, Augustine, talked about how he would go to the Psalms when he was a new believer, and the Psalms would stir his affection for God and his love for God. So much so that when Augustine died on his deathbed, he wanted to be left alone with guess what? The Psalms. Just he and the Psalms on his deathbed. I'd say it was pretty central for Augustine. Later, John Calvin wrote that the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. An anatomy of all the parts of the soul. It's beautiful. It's, it's a study of all the parts of the soul. Listen to what Calvin says. He says, there's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is, not, that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the, li- to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexity. It's, it's profound. Calvin says that the Psalms are like a mirror for us allowing us to see the full gambit of our emotion, allowing us to name things and to name experiences that we didn't even know. Do you have grief? Do you have sorrow? Do you have confusion? Do you have frustration? Go to the Psalms and you will see it named there. The 20th century theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, has a little book on the Psalms that that I think is very helpful And Bonhoeffer says that it's a dangerous error for us as Christians to think that we know how to pray. (laughs) That's always stuck with me. It's a dangerous error for for we as Christians in in and of ourselves to think that we know how to talk, that we know how to communicate to God. Um, He says that the Psalms are a necessity because the Psalms are our teachers a teacher that we desperately need to guide us into prayer, to guide us into communication, to guide us into communion with God. And just to continue my point, Bonhoeffer says, whenever the Psalter is abandoned, 
an incomparable treasure vanishes from the church. But whenever they are recovered, comes an unsuspecting power. When the Psalms are recovered, comes an unsuspecting power. This is, this is high praise for, for the Psalms. And if I'm honest, when I re- think about my own life and my own interaction with the Psalms, I don't know if I can say this, right? And so my hope for this series is that we would learn together as a community, um, together, as we journey through the Psalms together, <laughs> that we would learn um, how to pray, that we would come to the Psalms, that we would see what's going on, and that naturally, just within the life of our families and of our church, that the Psalms would have a central role and importance, and that we could not see our life apart from that. Lord, would you do that for us? I know we all deeply desire that. So, uh, our psalm for today is Psalm 44. It's a psalm of lament. And so my prayer is that this psalm would be a teacher this morning for us, that it would teach us how to pray in the midst of suffering. Right? To pray in the midst of anguish. To pray in the midst of confusion. And that the psalm would teach us um, how to bring our entire selves before God when we are in that place. When we have that dark night of the soul. So for our purposes this morning, I'm going to divide the psalm into two parts, and we're going to walk through each part together. So let's do that. Uh, Look at verses 1 through 8 with me, Psalm 44. In verses 1 through 8, the psalmist remembers and celebrates God's deliverance of his people in the past and in the present. Verse 1. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, and in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm, in the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Okay, so what's going on? Well, the psalmist recounts victories that God won for his people throughout the past. Think about this. Growing up, the psalmist would have sat at the feet of his parents, his grandparents, teachers, leaders, and he would have heard these stories. He would have heard these stories about Yahweh's power, about how Yahweh delivered his people. And what's clear, what would have been clear from all of these stories is that Israel had victories. Israel defeated their enemies. How? Um, Not because they outmanned and outgunned everyone. Not because of their military strategy. No, because Yahweh fought for them. Yahweh gave them victory, right? The psalmist would have known this. And so, then in verses uh, 
5 through 8, there's this shift. And the, sh- the psalmist goes from reflecting in the past to reflecting in the present. To saying that this is not just my ancestor's story, but this is my story. Look at verse 5. Through you we push down our foes. Verse 6, I don't trust in my bow or sword. Verse 7, you have saved me from my foes. Verse 8, we have not stopped boasting in you, and we will continue to give you thanks forever. This is not just his ancestor's story. This is his story. And as I was reflecting on these verses, is this not our story? Do we not enter into this? Think about it. How did you learn about the faith? How many of us sat at the feet of parents, of grandparents, of Sunday school teachers, of pastors, of spiritual parents, spiritual mothers and fathers, and we heard them open up the Scriptures and reveal the wonders and the glory of God. We saw. And then... They told us about how God had moved in the church's history. And then they told us about how God had moved in their own life. Right? And then as we grow up hearing these stories, something happens and all of a sudden these stories are not just something in the past and they're not just something that our parents told us. It's not just something that's true for them, but it's true for us. We are people that have tasted and seen the power and the deliverance of God. I think back to my teenage self and I think about a very hurt, a very broken teenager that desperately wanted to be loved, that desperately wanted to be accepted. And I see how God, through everything in the midst of his rebellion and running away, was working and drawing him back was bringing in particular people into his life, was redeeming the wounds. And so I look back on it all and I say, if not for the grace of God, right? If not for the grace of God. I know that you can look back on your own life and say the same thing. And so that we as a community... I know you all, for better or for worse, you know? Um, I mean, I know you all. I mean, I've seen your faith. I have seen you trust in God. And so we sit here this morning as a community that proclaims, if we don't have Jesus, then we have nothing. Right? Uh, You remember the disciples in John 6? Some disciples get up and leave. Jesus, and so Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, are, are you going to leave as well? And, and what did the disciples say? They say, where the heck are we going to go? Right? Where would we go, Lord? We've left everything for you. It's true for us too, isn't it? We, with the disciples, enter into that story of a people that say, Lord, where else would we go? You are our everything. And so this first part of the psalm, this first movement, is so important, I think, to understanding the second part of the psalm. And I think this morning, 
if we really are going to enter into the story that this psalm is telling and not just sit back and have some sort of intellectual exercise, that we need to grasp that we join in the story with the psalmist. A story that says we trust in God, right? Okay, so this leads us to the second part of the psalm. And in the second part of the psalm, the psalmist pours out his heart in a lament. He pours out his anguish before God. So there's this shift. It, it's like you're watching a movie and the family's in the park and it's a beautiful day and they're having a picnic and the kids are laughing, right? And then all of a sudden this song comes on and it's in this minor key and you think, oh crap, right? Here we go. That's kind of what happens here. Look at verse 9 with me. I want to read verses 9 through 16 and make some observations so we can really see these prayers. Verse 9, But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. He says, Lord, the things that we have cherished the most have been taken away from us. And that's because of you. Verse 11, you have made us like sheep for the slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. A.K.A. the image is of a shepherd that leads his sheep into a pasture that is filled with wolves and then turns and walks away. It's, it's very striking imagery. Verse 12, You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You want to talk about shocking imagery? Here the psalmist describes God like a slave trader that doesn't care about the price for the slave that they're selling. They just want to get rid of it. That's how the psalmist feels about God. Verse 13. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock. God, your, your treatment of us has made us a joke. We're a byword. We all know what a byword means, right? I had to look it up. A byword, it, it, it's a negative example. We're a negative example for the nations. The nations say, okay, you know what not to do? Look to Israel. Look to the people of God. The psalmist says, God, we're, we're a joke. We're a byword. And in verse 15, where's the psalmist at? All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. Whew. It's clear, I, I think, right? The psalmist, because of his circumstances, because of the suffering, because of the, the heaviness of the current moment, feels like God has completely abandoned him. Completely abandoned him. Can you relate to that? Not, I, I know that's not true, but have you ever... 
But have you ever felt that? Right? Yeah. With the psalmist situation, we don't know all the details of, of when and what. Uh, what it seems like is that instead of experiencing victory in battle, that the people of God are experiencing humiliating and devastating defeats. And there doesn't appear to be a rhyme or reason. As we'll see later, the people of God are saying, Lord, we haven't been unfaithful. We haven't turned from you. So why is this happening? Um, And what's so striking is that in the midst of all of this, the psalmist doesn't attribute these defeats to a more powerful enemy or because they didn't have the right military technique. No. He attributes it to God's absence. He says, God, you're the one that ultimately allowed this to happen. Why did you allow this to happen? And so he cries out in lament. Now, I was talking to someone this week, and they said, what are you preaching on? And I said, I'm, I'm preaching on a, a psalm of lament. And they said, oh, wow, you, you really like to talk about lament, don't you? I thought it was a little snarky, actually. And I said, no, the Bible likes to talk about lament. I didn't say that. I wish I would have. You know when you go back and you're like, I should have said this. I said, yeah, I actually do like to talk about lament. But this conversation caused me to reflect, why do I like to talk about lament? Right? And I think a few things. I think one is I've looked at the, lo- the reality and the presence of lament in scriptures, and then I've looked at my own prayer life. I have to be honest and say that I don't lament before God. That's not present in my prayer life. Two, like I said earlier, I think that this is something that has been lost in our corporate worship. Uh, for example, there aren't a lot of worship songs that say the line, how long, O Lord? We sang one this morning, right? But when you look up, okay, let's find some worship songs that talk about lament, and you look into Google, I guess, you're looking at Google in this instance, right? There's not a ton of results. I think that's beginning to change, but I still think there's an absence. It It feels weird, the prayers. It feels off. It doesn't fit in our corporate worship or in our individual prayer life. So what's going on there? You see what I'm saying? And then three, I think I'm just struck by the reality. I know I've said this before, but I think I'm just struck by the reality that there are more psalms of lament than any other type of psalm. Now that's fascinating to me. And so the question that I have with that is, should that shape our worship and what our worship looks like? And should that shape our prayer life and what our prayer life looks like? But I am curious because I want you to enter in with me this morning. What do you hear when you hear lament? What, what comes to mind? I'm in a counseling master's program right now. What's coming up for you? Right? What did you say, Lisa? Feeling sorry for yourself. Complaining. I'm sorry? 
If only it had turned out different, right? So I'm hearing a lot of positive responses when we think about lament. (laughs) You fell into my trap. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, totally. The word lament is not a word that we commonly use in our daily vernacular. So when we hear, when we think about it, a bunch of different images, a bunch of different thoughts can come to mind. So what I want to do with the rest of our time is by walking through this psalm and by looking at the scriptures, try to give us a glimpse of what it looks like to come to God and lament and why I think that this is a good thing and that this is something that God wants us to do so we can begin to get a picture of lament. Uh So first, first, lament. Lament is all about turning to God because he is our Lord. Lament is an act of trust and vulnerability. It's an act of trust and vulnerability. Uh, It's important to note from the beginning that all of these laments that we see in the Psalms um, are done in God's presence, are before God. For for many of us, and and I'm talking to myself here, but I'm saying us so it's not so personal— Uh, For many of us, we like to talk about God more than we like to talk to God. Uh, We like to ask questions about Him. We don't like to ask questions to Him. Do you see the difference? When we come to God in lament, we're saying that in my pain, Lord, I'm choosing to talk to you. Do you see how that's an act of trust? We're saying, Lord, I'm laying out my complaint. I'm I'm asking boldly. I'm doing um, all of this before you. As some of you have already noted, um, I think for some of us, we don't like the idea of lament because it just feels like complaining, right? And we look around in our culture and we say, oh, we live in a culture where everyone's just complaining, right? And I mean, there's truth to that. And so we don't want to do that. And many of us, as we stand before God, we think, who are we to lay out a complaint before God? We are very well aware of our own sin. We are very well aware of our finitude. We are very well aware that we see things wrongly, right? So who are we to go before him in this posture? And this is why I think it's so important to know this reality. The Psalms of Lament are different than the grumblings of Israel in the wilderness. There's a difference. The Psalms of Lament are different than the grumblings of Israel in the wilderness. What is that difference? It's trust. It's trust and it's faith. It's trust and it's faith. In The Psalms of Lament, the act of coming before God, the act of opening up, the act of sharing, is an act of trust. Where the grumblings in the wilderness were what? A lack of faith in God. There's a difference. In Lament, everything is wrapped in trust in the promises of God. 
We have to understand that if we're going to understand biblical lament. Okay. Secondly, first, coming before God in trust. Second, um, lament is a prayer that we offer to a sovereign God when life doesn't fit with what we know to be true about him. Lament is a prayer that we offer to a sovereign God when life doesn't fit with what we know to be true about him. Okay, so I'm taking this from the Psalms. So lament looks like this. Um, Lord, I know you're good, but this is really hard. I know that you promised to be with me, but I don't feel like you're near me. Uh, We come before God and we ask, Lord, how is this possible? Lord, how long until no more children suffer and die because of sickness, war, and abuse? How long, Lord? Lord, we see violence in the streets. And we know that you hate death more than we do. We know that you care about people more than we do. And so why do you allow this to continue? Right? Uh, Lord, we, are, we know that you're sovereign. Right? Do you see that trust? We know you're sovereign. Right? No doubt. So why does it feel like we're just pawns in the hands of self-serving politicians? Name a politician. Totally kidding. <laughs> but why does it feel that way? Right? Yeah. Lord, we know you're sanctifying the church. Right? We know you're at work. We know you're transforming us. Each person into the person of Jesus Christ. Right? We know that. Why doesn't it look like it? Amen? <laughs> yeah. Why doesn't it look like it? And lament is a prayer where we offer, lament is a prayer, excuse me, that we offer to a sovereign God when life doesn't fit what we know to be true about him and his promises in Scripture. Third, still with me? All right. Third, in lament, we bring our grief, our mourning, and our confusion before God. It doesn't take a biblical scholar to see the grief in Psalm 44, right? A cursory reading of the text shows us that. It also doesn't take a biblical scholar to see the psalmist's confusion. He is totally bewildered with the set of circumstances. He's confused. I think what the Old Testament scholar R.W.L. Moberly says is, is worth thinking about. He says that the Psalms of Lament show that the experience of anguish, the experience of puzzlement, confusion, and the life of faith, I think this is important, is not a sign of deficient faith. Let me read that again. The Psalms of Lament show that the experience of anguish and puzzlement in the life of faith is not a sign of deficient faith something to be outgrown, right? Something to be put behind us. Rather, it's intrinsic to the very nature of faith. How does that sit with you? Um, Do you know what a mature faith looks like? A mature faith looks like 
Lord, this really hurts. Right next to, Lord, what the heck is going on? Right next to, Lord, I trust in you. That is a mature faith. That is a mature prayer life of dependence on God. Let me ask you a question. This is something that I've been reflecting on. Does, does your prayer life involve communicating your sorrow before your Heavenly Father? Or, which I'm guessing this might be some of our instincts, um, or does it involve you cleaning yourself up and then going before Him? Right? Now, why would someone do this? Someone would do this because they feel like they're inconveniencing their Heavenly Father. I wonder why we would feel that way. Why for us to come before God and to be honest and to be open and to be vulnerable with how we feel, why do we feel like that is inconveniencing Him? Why do we feel like that's annoying Him? The lament in the Psalms is teaching us to do this. One of the things I've been praying is, Lord, would you teach me how to grieve well? I've learned, I don't know how to grieve. I don't know how to sit in sorrow. I think I respond in two ways. I respond by numbing out. What new TV show can I watch? Right? Or picking up my device. I, I, I'm numbing out. You can insert whatever into this, right? And what does numbing out do? It numbs me. I don't have to feel the sorrow. I don't have to feel the grief that feels too much, that's overwhelming. I can either numb out or I can dismiss it. And, I, and why do I dismiss it? Well, because I just want to quickly move on. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Let's just, it, it, whatever. Let's just move on, right? Both of these things our refusal to sit in grief. The Psalms of Lament don't want us to stuff our grief. They don't want us to ignore our grief. They don't want us to pretend like we have it all together. The Psalms of Lament want to teach us to do what? To process our grief. Oh, and to process our grief by ourselves? No, to process our grief before our Heavenly Father. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And so... I wonder, in, in this moment, if one of the ways that we can be a people that bring healing and a people that can go into all of the crap of this world with a gospel and a message of hope is by being a people that know how to grieve. What if someone could say that about Shades Valley? That church knows how to grieve well. I think, we, I, think we, I think we do to an extent, but I think we can grow, right? That, that community knows how to bring their emotion before God, right? I would love for someone to say, this community is so freaking emotional, right? Always talking about their emotions, and they're doing it in prayer, they're doing it in song. Even the pastor's talking about it. I can't escape it. I would love that. I thrive on that type of criticism. Yeah. If that makes you uncomfortable, if you can't picture that, 
in the context of a mature faith. Look at Jesus. And look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And look at how he brings his grief before his Heavenly Father. Okay. Fourth. Fourth. In lament, we bring our confusion before God. I've already spoken about this a little bit, but in lament, we bring our confusion before God. Look at verse 17 with me. Psalmist says, All this has come upon us, Lord, all this suffering, but we've not forgotten you. We've not been false to your covenant. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would God not discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Verse 21, meaning, God, you know all things. You know that if we were disobedient to you, um, you would know that, right? You would see that. That's what the psalmist is saying. We haven't, and yet we are like sheep to be slaughtered. Why is this happening? Lord, we were not unfaithful. We did not turn to you, to idols, and because of that, we were actually more vulnerable. Now, I think this is good. So, the people of God, because of their history, because of seeing how God fights for them, they don't trust in their military power. Oof, yeah. They don't trust in outgunning. They don't trust in their numbers. Who do they trust in? They trust that God is going to give them victory. And they did. And what happened? They faced defeat. And so they're totally bewildered. And the psalmist says, Lord, it just seems like our suffering is meaningless. That's what he's expressing. That it's meaningless. Lord, is it, is it meaningless because I can't make sense of it? Is this not our story? Right? Suffering, and we just can't get an answer to it. We just can't fit it into our story. It just doesn't make sense. You're someone who trusts in Jesus, but your singleness feels meaningless. And following Jesus feels like it just makes it harder. You trust in Jesus, but your vocation has not been what you thought it was. There are so many broken dreams. There are so many disappointments. And you feel totally trapped. And you are exhausted. And it feels like even God himself could not change your situation. You trust in Jesus, but the grief from losing a loved one is, a loved one is completely overwhelming. And you feel like you'll never get through it. You trust in Jesus, but the pain that you experience as a child often leads you to ask, what kind of loving, what kind of loving Heavenly Father would allow this to happen to a small child? Where were you, God? You trust in Jesus, but you watch helplessly as close friends leave the faith and one well-known Christian leader after the next commits unspeakable evil. The list could continue, right? Why does God allow these things to happen? I'm going to tell you. I have no idea. Right? I have no idea. I'm not God. Thank God. 
I, I don't have an easy answer, right? And, and to be honest, I think easy answers do not take into account the seriousness of the pain and suffering that we experience in our humanity, right? To look at someone who is, is suffering and grieving and has experienced great loss and to give them a, a, a theological, easy, quick answer, I don't think that that's satisfying. I don't think that actually takes their suffering seriously. So I, I don't have an answer. Go in peace, right? I don't, I don't have an answer, but I can tell you that there's space. That you don't just have to shut up and be quiet and deal with it yourself. That everything that you're feeling, that everything that you're dealing with, that God wants you to bring that before him. I think this is profound, and I don't think we actually believe this. God put the laments in the psalm so that we could be taught how to lament. God wants us to lament. God wants us to lament. Your heavenly Father wants you to bring the anguish and the fear and the heartbreak before him so that you can work it out in his presence and so that he can lead you towards trust in him, so that he can lead you towards faith in him. Yeah. Okay, my last point about lament for this morning, my last point. Fifth and finally, in lament we come in petition before God. In lament we come in petition before God. Look at verses 24 and through 26. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Move, Lord. Okay. If I'm honest with you this morning, I confess that when I'm in a bad place, I go to cynicism. There's something that's very delightful to me about cynicism. Uh, it just feels really warm and cozy for some reason. It feels safe to me. Uh, it's easier for me to look at evil and suffering in the world and to just say, you know what, this is the way that things are. It's just the way that it is. God told us it was going to be this way. You're getting all upset about it. And God said he's going to make it right in the end. So, you know, what do you want to do for dinner, right? <laughs> that, can, that can be my knee-jerk reaction. It's not good. I'm, I'm like that wounded character in the movie that's like, life is pain, and the quicker you figure that out, the quicker you can move on with your life, right? It's not good. I don't want to be that. But the psalmist doesn't do that here. The psalmist, in the midst of his grief, in the midst of, sorry, in the midst of anguish, confusion, all of it, he doesn't go to cynicism, right? He comes, in verse 25 we see this, he comes bowing down before God. He comes in complete and total dependence upon God, asking God to move, asking God to accomplish his redemptive work. Yes, we believe that we live in the already not yet, and that the kingdom of God has come on earth through the person of Jesus Christ, um, not fully, and so we realize that in the present that means suffering, that means pain, that means death, that means sorrow, that means broken dreams, that means wounds. Yes, we believe that, 
but we also confess that Jesus is Lord. And therefore, nothing that happens to us is outside of the providential care and control of God. No circumstance, no instance is outside of his redemptive purposes. And so we don't have a naive optimism, but at the same time, we don't have a resigned cynicism where we say evil just runs the show and things are the way that they are, so we might as well just get used to it. No, we are a people that, yes, acknowledges that God is sovereign, but in the midst of that, in lament, we protest and we pray for God to move. We say, Lord, bring about your redemptive purposes. God, bring about your healing. Bring about your flourishing. Bring about your justice. We are a people, because of the hope of the gospel, that is not crushed by the continual evil, by the continual suffering, right? We're a people that are able to stand in that, sit in that, not being numbed out, not moving through too quick. We're a people who lament. And we pray, God, move. Because if you can raise your son from the dead, then you can bring life out of any circumstance, no matter how dark it is. Let me conclude with this. As many of you know, we have a podcast, a weekly midweek podcast. I know you all listen to it. Just wait for the next episode. And uh, during the podcast, there's a, there's a segment uh, called JM's Album of the Week. And normally that's where John Mark recommends kind of a weird esoteric album that no one's going to listen to. <laughs> but, but this week, he, he's recommended an album, uh, two weeks ago, excuse me, he's, he's recommended an album that I've been listening to nonstop. All right, so touche, John Mark. It's, an, it's by a musician named Andy Squires, and it's called Poet Priest. And these songs have just been giving words to my experience and to, and to my experience of faith. And there's one song called Love Never Fails and where a squire reflects on the reality. It's so beautiful. He reflects on the reality through the, through the song and the lyrics of being caught up in the love of God and the suffering and pain that that entails. <laughs> right? So to be caught up in the never-ending, never-failing love of God is to experience much pain and suffering, right? And he reflects on that in the psalm, in the song, excuse me, not the psalm. He says this, he sings this. He says, the trouble in trusting a Savior not seen is you find out he don't fail when he don't intervene. The trouble in trusting a Savior that's not seen is you find out he don't fail when he don't intervene. It's worth reflecting on this morning. Our dreams up in smoke beneath plunging nail were the punchline of the joke. Hey, love never fails. Did you know that Paul, in Romans 8, quotes Psalm 44? And it's right at the end. Right at the end of chapter 8 in this kind of climactic, triumphant statement that he makes. Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it's written? Here we go. Psalm 44. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Next verse. 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The trouble in trusting a Savior not seen is you find out he don't fail when you don't intervene. Even in this beautiful, triumphant language about the love of Jesus Christ, about the victory of Jesus Christ, there's room for lament. I find that interesting. The lament is included here, right? Now, lament is not the last word on suffering, but it is a valid word to be spoken. It is a good thing. It is something that God wants us to do. And so like Job, we don't get all the answers, right? We have a bird's eye view in the book of Job. Job doesn't, right? We're Job. (laughs) We don't get all the answers, right? But we get something better. We get communion with the triune God. We get a relationship with him in which we can bring our entire selves before him without shame, without fear. We can express everything that we're feeling. What do we do with those feelings? Because we all feel them. If you tell me you don't, you're lying, right? What do we, my question is, what do we do with those, right? We bring those before him. And as we do, he shapes us, and we actually grow in trust in him through it all. And we can say, love never fails, because we do know, as Romans 8 says, that he works for all things, and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ.